Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a podcast in which we ordinarily talk about films uh, within a particular theme that changes from episode to episode, but this week we're talking about television. Uh, we're also doing one of our uh, kind of famous top ten lists, which we do occasionally, to uh, mine traffic. Uh, I'm Joe Gastineau <laughs> and uh, joining me as always is the ever-dependable Ed Davis. How are you going, sir? I'm doing very well. How are you today? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. Uh, you've got the Emmy. You're in America, as uh, regular viewers will know. You've got the Emmys on in the background, or is it not started yet? Or I don't even know what it's time it is. It's not started yet. It's not started yet, and I I don't bother with any of the red carpet stuff. So ah, okay. No, is it Ryan Seacrest as usual? Uh, probably, uh, and probably Joan Rivers making fun of everyone behind their backs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I assume. Yeah, we're doing uh, this week. We're doing our top ten. Is about uh, great. TV season finales uh, we're doing it uh, very obviously to tie in uh, to the fact that Breaking Bad um, one of the best shows of this century or any century of that for that matter uh, comes to an end uh, by the time this show goes out there'll be one episode left and uh, people will just have to go back to their ordinary lives once it ends um, but that seems uh, like an appropriate place to start uh, this podcast talking about one of Breaking Bad's great season finales um, but first we must hear the jingle. Top ten. Yeah, Breaking Bad season four. Uh, the episode face off, the the kind of the end of a of a what kind of amounts to a one and a half two season long arc, which is basically who is the kind of more diabolical criminal mastermind, Walter White or Gus Fring. Yeah, and Gus was introduced as a sort of minor character at the end of the second season. He was uh, sort of the latest in a long string of uh, characters that Walt met as he sort of travelled further and further into the drug underworld of Albuquerque, starting with low-level drug dealers like Tuco and then just working his way up the chain until you end up with, uh, you know, Gus, who's obviously the supplier. And then uh, initially they get on because they see each other as... Uh, a means to an end which is making a lot of money mm-hmm. and then as it goes along uh, their relationship sours Walt starts to see Gus as a uh, as just the, basically the equivalent of the guy who used to run the car wash he worked in and hated uh, and so he f- tries and figures out a way to defeat him they try a load of various schemes to try and uh, one up him he tries to poison him with a rice in cigarette which doesn't go to plan uh, and eventually through a wonderfully constructed uh, plot where uh, he ends up uh, blowing him up with an old man yes he does the old, old um, the old suicide bomber in a wheelchair routine uh, classic yeah it's a good one um, you kind of said to us before we went on air like the, the idea that the show is called Face Off and Gus ends the show with his face being blown clean off um it's a, a kind of a slightly pulpy turn for, for Breaking Bad to take well I think there's a, a, a strong pulp element to Breaking Bad in general but uh, I think that's probably the one of the more um, audacious things they ever did in that regard because not only is it a a pun essentially mm. <laughs> um, 
it is also uh, the, the the way in which that scene is handled, which is the bomb goes off and then um, Gus walks out the door, and for a second you're like, holy shit, he's the Terminator, because <laughs> that's the only way he could walk there. And then the camera sort of pans around, and then you see that literally half his head is missing, uh, and then he just falls down dead after adjusting his tie. Is such a it's, it's a moment that is sort of ridiculous in its awesomeness. I mean, that's kind of what they're going for. It doesn't derail the show either, um, mm. given that it's not rooted in kind of like kitchen sink realism, but in a kind of realism. Yes, yeah, it's sort of a heightened realism, but not kind of a, a ridiculousness. No, no. I think that's the closest it ever got, but it still managed to do it because I think it, at that point you're so invested in the battle to between the two that it kind of earns it. Yeah, and uh, the build to that season, that season is so immaculately paced um, that I think the episode beforehand where he tries the car bomb, or it might be two mm. episodes beforehand. No, it is that, is that one. Yeah. Directly before. Relentlessly tense. Or you have the uh, the episode Crawl Space, which ends with him um, hiding underneath the house, looking up as the camera slowly pulls back and he's just laughing maniacally. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is one of the most intense moments the show had ever done up to that point. Obviously, topped since then, um, as we'll talk about in a few weeks' time. Yeah. But it's, um, but it, yeah, that, that was that whole season is is immaculate, and then it just ends with you know this showdown that's so well constructed, and then it ends with sort of a great a a, a great line of of Walt, you know, just saying I won. Which is with that kind of weary um, power that he has in his voice at the end of a long battle, mm. and then uh, you know the reveal, you know the final shot of the season, which is the slow zoom in on that poison plant, uh, revealing that he was responsible for the poisoning of Brock without actually saying it. It's just such a, it's great because it's it, it a sort of caps off the entire sh- season. And almost feels like had the show been cancelled, it could have ended there. Mm-hmm. But then that final shot just kind of says, "Oh no, there's a lot of unfinished business that's left to cover." Yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. Um, Which is a wonderful balance. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, uh, a great way to start this list off uh, with uh, a kind of an explosive <laughs> climax um, to a series. And I, I kind of honestly don't know where Breaking Bad is going to end. Um, mm. But I kind of get the feeling it's not going to be quite as kind of uh, action-packed as that. I think it's probably going to be a little bit lower key. That's my prediction. I hope to be proved wrong. Um, well, he is wandering around with a massive machine gun in the flash forwards. Yep, yep. I just, I just can't see him wielding it around. I just can't see him kind of... Do you think he, he go- shows up to rescue Jesse or whatever and he just gets killed instantly? Yeah, I just can't see him going John Matrix on uh, <laughs> on anyone um, but yeah cool Breaking Bad season 4 that's our first pick what's our next pick Ed? our next pick is Angel uh, the finale of the 5th season titled Not Fade Away uh, was it the final season or did they go longer than yes that? yeah that was the the final one they wanted to do more but um, basically there was a there was a, a weird sort of power struggle between Joss Whedon and Fox um, Fox used to always wait to the last minute to give Angel a renewal but they always renewed it because it did fairly well mm-hmm. and then that year Joss Whedon basically said to the executives 
you know, you're going to renew us. So why don't you just tell us early enough so that, you know, everyone can sort of make plans and know where they're going to be working and they don't have to worry about uh, getting their, um, they don't have to worry about where they're going to be living or where they're going to, what jobs they're going to be doing next year. And the executives felt they were uh, boxed into a corner and they cancelled the show. Wow. Um, uh, you know, so so that it was kind of an abrupt uh, final one, but it's uh, it's one that ends up being kind of perfect, as evidenced by the fact that they did continue the show in comic form, and uh, yeah, the the comic series they that they created from it was kind of shitty. Um, right. Yeah, but basically, uh, the entire fifth season of Angel is all about how Angel Investigations get put in charge of. Wolfram and Hart, which is the uh, evil law firm that forms the main bad guys to the entirety of the show. They're essentially lawyers who work for these uh, great unseen evil beings that are responsible for everything bad in Los Angeles. And then at the end of the fourth season, uh, Angel basically, through a, a series of events, ends up being put in charge of them. And the fifth season is about the the cast and the, the characters trying to figure out a way to subvert um, to try and subvert the uh, the company and try and do good and as it goes along they realise that that's not possible you know that the evil is kind of built into the heart of it and uh, in the final episode they decide that the only thing they can do is, they, is if they murder all of the senior partners uh, and the whole episode builds to that too it's kind of in a similar way to you know that Breaking Bad episode where they have to kill all the guys in five minutes mm-hmm. uh, in prison where all the various members of the team are assigned someone they have to kill and they have to uh, carry out this thing knowing that they're going to die mm-hmm. and by the end of the episode a lot of uh, beloved characters are no longer alive and it ends with the apocalypse right <laughs> okay. um, because the uh, because uh, angel investigations have messed with forces that they can't control, and they are basically the episode ends with them in an alleyway uh, staring down a horde of terrifying uh, creatures who are just charging at them, mm-hmm. and there's this sense that they're gonna put up a good fight, but chances are they are not gonna make it. Um, um, but but the the overarching if there's an overarching thesis to Angel as a show, it's the idea of, um, you know, sometimes the most important thing is fighting the good fight, even if you're not going to win. You know, that's the that's kind of it, is that sometimes it's worth battling regardless of the outcome. And that's kind of the note it ends on is, uh, it ends with a great final line, which is where they're all kind of dividing who they're going to fight. And it ends with Angel just saying, I'm going to take the dragon. And then them running at the screen and a cut to black, and it's just uh, it's just a brilliantly uh, it's just a brilliantly constructed final episode in terms of underlying what the themes of the uh, of the series are and giving all the characters a moment to shine, even if that moment comes in death. And uh, it's just a, it's just a really beautiful piece of work. Mm. Uh, so you're describing this all to someone like me who hasn't seen Angel. Uh, and I, you had me at evil law firm <laughs> because yeah, that yeah. sounds like a lot of fun. An evil law firm and Los Angeles is literally hell. Right. Okay. Yeah, it's got everything you could possibly want. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Um, our next choice 
um, is uh, a fairly obvious one um, in terms of kind of recent television. Um, we've kind of opined about this show before in great lengths, uh, but The Wire, and uh, more specifically The Wire Season 4, uh, I think we both agree that Season 4 is The Wire's strongest season, certainly the one with the most emotional resonance, and uh, the last episode of that season, uh, Final Grades, I believe it is called, um, certainly kind of drives that emotional point home. Yeah, the the, the whole, as with the, the previous shows, the, the power of the of the finale is that it kind of underlines everything the whole season leading up to it has been about you know the the breaking bad was about the power struggle between um between walter and gus in angel it was all about the 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 characters realizing that to do what's right requires the ultimate sacrifice in this it kind of brings together the stories of the four uh, young boys who have been kind of the focus of the season mm-hmm. uh, and and you know, taking them from the the optimism of their early days as uh, just four kids kind of running around having fun to the end where they're splintered and they're all sent off on different paths, most of which are terrible. <laughs> yeah. Most of which are heartbreaking. Yeah. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, the season kind of ends with uh, another board going up on 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 a on a vacant. Is that right? How happens? Because the season four starts with uh, um, the girl buying the nail gun, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. And th- yeah. isn't it a thing that they say in in the kind of the ethos of doing the wire um, that you could sum up the themes of the season and kind of where it was going to go with the cold open from the first episode? Yeah. And yeah, uh, it kind yeah, of start, right. starts with the purchase of the nail gun and then ends with. Uh, another body going into a vacant, and that's kind of where we go with season five, isn't it? With the kind of the kind of serial killer vacant kind of uh, murders route, but it it's um, yeah, it's quite um, amazing. I find that we get such a reaction to the four boys that we were only introduced to ten episodes previously, or twelve mm. episodes previously, whatever it is. You'd expect to have that emotional punch delivered for when we find out the fate of a character that we'd lived with for four seasons but you know their world worlds and their kind of plights are so kind of expertly realised that we you know we we aren't really kind of touched with what happens to them at the end yeah and I think a large part of that comes from um, I read the Brett Martin book Difficult Men a few weeks ago which is all about the creation of you know The Wire and Mad Men and Sopranos and Breaking Bad Mm-hmm. And um, I think a large reason why that has such emotional resonance is that's kind of the Ed Burns season. Right. Know, Ed Burns, who was the uh, essentially the co-creator of The Wire, the former Baltimore policeman who also became a public school teacher. You can really see how much uh, he cares about that world and about the sort of the sort of kids that he dealt with and seeing over the years what happened to each of them. They all either you know some of them escaped, but lots of them got sucked into the game. And mm. you know that's the kind of the tragic trajectory is you see that all of those kids are essentially good kids who have potential and fit you feel you know if they got some good breaks then they could get out of it and unfortunately, none of them had good breaks <laughs> yeah <laughs> pretty much yeah, and we also see um uh a kind of surprising emotional payoff in the fact that when uh young Bodie Broadus 
uh, perishes at the hands of um, Marlowe's enforcers, um, we're pretty devastated by that, even though uh, from the beginning he's been uh, morally repellent as a character. Uh, in you know the first season he kills you know what can only be described as one of the only truly sympathetic characters on the show um but yet by the time he perishes in a kind of uh, ungainly gunfight on a street corner in kind of west baltimore uh, we're crushed by that yeah especially because you know i found that when i rewatched the show um when i when i rewatched the first season after watching the whole thing all the way through is that suddenly you get to the point where he kills wallace mm-hmm. and you kind of think Oh yeah, he was a bad guy. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's like when I watched it the first time through, I I didn't I uh, never hated someone so much for Catford carrying out an act like that on a television show, and then you get uh, to the fourth season and then he gets shot in the head. It's equally as tragic because you've kind of lived with that guy and seen him kind of you've seen his world a bit more and seen where he's coming from, and yeah. he's not necessarily a good guy but you know he, you understand him as a person whereas mm-hmm. I think in the first one he's a lot by, necess- by necessity he's one of the sort of the, the slightly uh, thinner characters because yeah. he's not what the focus but as he's kind of had to be he became the focus and had to step up you know he became so kind of relatable uh, and you know obviously it doesn't help that he dies being shot in the back mm. which is uh one of those things that you know is whoever it is you kind of feel bad about it yeah there's no way to go out um yeah what's the song in because obviously the the wire famously uses one song a season in the kind of the end montage uh, when it kind of breaks the diegesis of the show and uh what's season four is it the paul weller song uh yeah i think it is yeah i think it's a cover i can't remember who did the original i think it might have been dr john i think dr john actually appears on the Paul Weller version but yeah another great use of music in The Wire um, works really really nicely um, and yeah like we mentioned in our special Wire podcast uh, episode is it 13 or 12 uh, I think that one is 12 12 yeah it features my favourite moment of The Wire which is um, uh, Seth Gilliam's character realising that he can't save Randy can't adopt Randy uh, just because he kind of wants to offer an easy solution and he's kind of lost him and he's sitting in his car and kind of losing his shit um, that is you know my favourite moment in the wire and that features in that episode um, and yeah that's really the kind of that whole season is the high point of that show which to say that is quite some compliment because that show is pretty goddamn good all round um, what's our next choice Ed? Uh, the next one is the season two or series two finale of the Channel Four sitcom Spaced, ah. entitled, appropriate enough, Ends. And this is uh, it was the season finale or series finale if we're talking about uh, a British show, uh, and also yeah, the very last we saw of the the, the Spaced gang. Yes, um, I'm not sure if they ever intended to do more episodes. Uh, I think because. Simon Pegg and Jessica Hines always used to get asked questions by fans about when they were going to start work on a third series, but uh, never happened. You know, they went off and made their own shows, and and Simon Pegg and Edgar Wright went off and made great films. Mm-hmm. And um, but I think that it would have been a shame if they'd gone and made more uh, more episodes, really, because uh, that one resolves a it resolves a, a couple of lingering plot lines, uh, particularly the whole thing about Martha, their landlady, not realising that uh, 
Daisy and Tim aren't a couple mm-hmm. uh, because that's kind of the whole subterfuge that gets them to uh, gets them the flat in the first place. You know, she finds that out and is going to throw them out and then decides in the end because they recreate say anything but with a tank that uh, you know they shouldn't that, that she should let them stay. So it, re- it removes that, which obviously was a source of humor throughout the show you know their attempts to kind of maintain the farce yeah uh, uh but it also just resolves so many of the the character arcs as well you know uh it, it kind of has tim uh, uh sort of commit to his girlfriend it has um it, it just kind of ends up uh, with uh you know brian kind of comes to terms with his relationship with twist uh, and you know, there's just it just everything kind of uh, finishes, and you kind of feel that they ended with enough openness and a sense that you know maybe we could revisit these characters maybe in a few years time, but there's enough sort of finality to it that you watch it feeling just kind of happy with where everyone ends up. Yeah, do you think like because like say that the fans have always been asking the question, is that just you know fans wishful thinking? There's no feasible way that those guys could ever come back and do anything that would be that would not kind of tarnish it really would they yeah the closest they came was when the series was released on dvd they did a documentary called skip to the end which is mm-hmm. where they talk about the creation of the show where they talk to all the various people involved and uh, talk to fans and everything yeah. and uh, uh at, at the end of it you know they go back to the house and they stand outside and talk for a bit and they knock on the door uh, no one comes to talk to them uh, so they leave, and then the door opens, and this is Simon Pegg and, and Jessica Hines walk walk away, and then mm-hmm. the door opens, and they open it as Tim and Daisy. Uh, Have they got they a baby walk, with them as well? Yeah, they, they're holding a baby called Luke. Ah, uh, yeah, I remember that. Uh, and uh, Daisy said, says, Tim, we're not calling her Luke. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, and it's a funny little moment, it's just kind of, but I, I kind of feel that that's just kind of, throwing the fans a bone saying almost as if you know maybe this could have happened somewhere down the line yeah but uh i, I think that you know the the canonical ending of the show which is everyone's sort of lives being shown in snapshots over the strains of the staunton lick by lemon jelly is uh just a is just such a perfectly sweet and happy and sort of uh, melancholy way to end the show that anything else would would really cheapen it yeah, I think you're probably right. Um, next choice is um, well, we kind of couldn't make this list without talking about it. And but The Sopranos, um, a TV show, much beloved uh, um, TV show that ended in a way that perhaps some people kind of were unhappy with. Uh, you could say <laughs> uh, the internet went a bit kind of cuckoo bananas when the um, quite kind of ambiguous ending. Um, drops um, but I was when we were kind of discussing this list I was um, kind of championing uh, the end of the first season of The Sopranos which uh, I don't know if you remember it but it's the episode where there's the big storm and they go to they go to Artie Bucco's new restaurant and there's a power cut and we get the the, the Springsteen song is it State Trooper that plays yeah. over the top and it just kind of ends that season with a really kind of intense <laughs> brooding atmosphere um that kind of sets everything up for what's going to happen in kind of seasons two and three um but yeah uh i think that you know we'd be remiss not to mention uh one of the the kind of most talked about season finales 
ever, which is um, the episode, oh, what's it called, Made in America, uh, which, you know, combines Journey uh, and uh, Diner and the sound of a door opening and a, a cut to black. Uh, for me, that was the perfect way to end the season. I was perfectly happy with it. I thought that was a brilliant way to do it. Um, what did you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I absolutely loved it. I remember um, when it aired over here, I couldn't watch it live because um, I was working really, really late. So I had it recorded and uh, I watched it the next day. But as I was driving home from work, uh, someone, on, I think it was Chris Evans, was on the radio talking about it. And as soon as he started, he played um, Don't Stop Believing. And then at the end of it, he said, that's played for anyone who watched The Sopranos last night. And I... I pretty much kicked my radio to shut it off because I just didn't want to hear anything about it. Right. Um, I wanted to go in as uh, as sort of clean as possible, which I did. You know, all I knew was that Journey was involved somehow. Mm. And so when you cut, when I would like watched it, it, it just kind of blew me away that it would end on such an audaciously uh, ambiguous note. You know, to just kind of end in such a way that says, eh, maybe the main character dies, maybe he doesn't. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, you decide. I mean, it's interesting that like since Glee has come out and we've suffered from Journey overkill to the kind of the most ludicrous degree that had the Sopranos aired and tried that ending maybe three or four years later, he would have just Soprano would have just taken a gun out and shot himself as soon as that song came on the jukebox. Yeah, they did. Uh, they have kind of beaten that one into the ground to a great degree, but I think arguably they probably only did that because. The, the Sopranos revived uh, Don't Stop Believing to a great extent mm. they but, made it a, a cultural force they did um, people let's face it are never going to be happy with something how something ends and when we do get to the uh, end of Breaking Bad there's going to be inevitable backlash isn't there because you know no one's going to be made no one's going to be happy with the how things end for anything are they no because everyone goes in expecting different things and, and the brilliance of the Sopranos ending is that it uh, it basically does it it denies the both sides of the audience what they want right <laughs> um, because I think there's two kinds of um, people who watch the the show there's the ones who watch it purely for the mob drama and want the violence and don't like any of the um, any of the philosophical and sort of metaphysical stuff all the dream sequences mm-hmm. and then there's people who watch it for that and, and realize that the mob drama, is is kind of fun but kind of hope in the end that tony will you know he'll get um they they think that he that they'll he'll get hit justice yeah uh that you know and and david chaser says that he thinks that both sides are kind of hypocritical the people who watch it just for the mob drama are watching the show for entirely the wrong reasons mm-hmm. and the people who watch it and enjoy it and then think in the end well you know he'll go to jail or he'll die they are just kind of, you know, trying to have their cake and eat it. Yeah. And in uh, in that ending, you know, whatever, you know, Tony may die, he may not die, but you know, it just doesn't matter. No, it doesn't. Uh, yeah, you know, the, the the whole thing is that his uh, his life, you know, whether it ends there or it ends in sort of twenty years. You know, he'll always still be Tony Soprano. He'll still be paranoid. He'll still be depressed. He'll still always have, be looking over his shoulder at people who go to the bathroom in members-only jackets. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that's the thing that's really 
that's really really uh, has such a huge impact about that ending is it, it it prevents you from it prevents you from getting kind of traditional satisfaction in any way and that's why I like it so much is it is really it, it is kind of a fuck you to the audience yeah but in a way that doesn't feel like it doesn't feel disingenuous it just feels it feels completely in keeping with the the show up until that point yeah which totally. always tried to defy what the audience was saying or, or what the audience wanted or expected yeah I can care um right we're at the halfway point now of our list I think it's now is a, a good enough time to maybe run down some of the shows that didn't make it just to kind of kill the tension for you and also kind of give a bit of a shout out to some of the people on Twitter today who have suggested many many great shows uh, we had uh, Sick Ryan on Twitter said uh, Twin Peaks that's a fucking great season finale uh, talk about fuck you to the audience that's a pretty big one um, we've got uh, Inglorious Twad on Twitter who has said Lost we're not going to include Lost the season 3 finale of Lost people talk about uh, I can't talk about that I haven't seen it but a lot of people seem to like that shit uh, When Do We Live on Twitter have uh, suggested Epitaph the ending to season 1 of Dollhouse um, and most seasons of Buffy they seem to like and also uh, the end of Enlightened um, which is kind of a a bittersweet thing to talk about now now that's been cancelled uh, Song Warmonger on Twitter has said uh, season 2 of the X-Files is it Anasazi um, that was a big one that's a good shout all great shows also Battlestar Galactica season 3 finale Crossroads has been put out uh, formerly Mad Andy on Twitter another one there we've got Community season 1 uh, Justice League season 4 lots of great shows suggested uh, that didn't make it we also didn't include some massively famous ones like MASH or Cheers uh, which were among the most watched shows of all time ever um, yeah so we're kind of we've got a, a very kind of uh, modern focus on the shows we picked well I think it just reflects the fact that we're that they're the shows that we kind of came up with yeah you know that they're the ones that have kind of really shaped our opinion of television and great as you know, the, the last episode of Cheers is, you know, I think it it doesn't mean as much to me as, you know, the ones that we've been talking about, which is, you know, not a, a reflection on the show, you know, great shows, but it's, it's just a reflection on sort of my own personal experience and, and your own personal reasons for liking these shows. Yeah, I mean, I did watch the Cheers finale, but when I watched it, I'm trying to think of when it would have been, I'd have been about 12 or 13, I think, when did that show end? Mm. Like 92, uh, 19... 93? I think it was 93. Yeah, so I'd have been about 12 and I hadn't seen the rest of them and Cheers for me was a show that I watched when it was on daytime TV during when I was at uni. It was a show that if you were watching it you were slacking off and not going in to do your work. <laughs> but, you know, it was pretty cool. Like, But, yeah, like I say, no no such resonance, uh, well, no, nothing near to the resonance of the shows that we're going to talk about that we've picked that we've kind of watched uh, kind of more formally later on uh, what's our next pick Ed our next is the Shield season 7 finale entitled Family Meeting Ooh. which is uh, the, the very final episode of the show uh, really it's kind of a culmination of all 7 seasons of the entire show you know the, the Shield uh, started in 2002 starred Michael Chiklis as Vic Mackey one of the all time great anti-heroes a mm -hmm. violent corrupt cop who uh, essentially just tried to tackle the gang violence of LA, of LA by becoming the most feared gang leader in in LA uh, you know sort of got, had his hand in everything in illegal gun running and drug running and all these sort of things but 
under the kind of pretense or the his own personal beliefs that he was doing it for the right reasons and that he was trying to protect people whilst also lining his own pockets and becoming very rich and powerful. Mm-hmm. And the pilot episode of The Shield open, opens with one of the most shocking at the time, and even now, one of the most shocking uh, things to ever happen in a TV show, which is uh, Vic... Uh, goes into a on a drug bust with his uh, his team, the strike team, including one member who we know is uh, a mole and who's investigating him and his activities. Mm-hmm. They uh, kill the drug dealers. The guy checks out the room. He turns around and Vic Mackey shoots him in the head and right. murders another cop in cold blood and makes it look like it was uh, the drug dealer who did it before being taken down by him. And the entire show kind of build around the death of, of that character Terry Crowley and um, for the first sort of four seasons it's kind of a thing that plays down in the background you know people are aware that Terry died in, in a way that seems suspicious but no one really investigates and then in the fifth season Forrest Whitaker shows up as a internal affairs agent who tries to figure out what had happened and becomes obsessed with Mackey uh, and comes very close to unraveling the truth um, but, you know, he's thwarted in the end. And the final two seasons are about uh, that, the the actions of, of him, of his character, kind of causing causing everything to fall apart for Vic on a personal and a professional level. Mm-hmm. And that all reaches its head in the final episode, which is all about Vic trying to track down his former uh, compatriot and best friend, Shane Vandrell, played by uh, Oscar winner uh, Walton Goggins, who oh, yeah. did great work on the show and is now can currently be seen in justified where he's equally very good Mm -hmm. and um it's all about the hunt for for him uh which ends in the titular uh family meeting which uh you know people always talk about sort of the red wedding nowadays is in terms of shocking television events it's pretty Uh, shocking yeah and uh the found the family meeting of family meeting it was the first time i remember watching something on television and 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 sort of literally not being able to contemplate uh, to comprehend what I was seeing it was so shocking mm. you know uh, I won't ruin it for people who haven't seen it I know you haven't seen what happens in it but it is a it is a truly uh, it is truly a heartrending sort of moment and and the series uh, went out on an incredible high that was kind of shocking and that uh, like the Sopranos ended in such a way that kind of left the audience unsatisfied because you kind of even though he's a horrible person who does horrible things you kind of want Vic Mackey to get away with it Mm -hmm. because he's such a charismatic character and in the final episode uh, he neither gets away with it or um, or succeeds it's it's a very delicate balance they make and it's really really uh, fascinating Uh, the next choice uh, I'm going to pick is I'm going to kind of slightly cheat here we're going to get two two for the price of one um, but I'm going to go for the season two finale of the British sitcom The Office and also the season two finale of the American sitcom The Office uh, now both um, both season finales um, end with a kind of very similar story beat in that uh, Jim or Tim <laughs> puts themselves out there to Pam or Dawn um, and is kind of rejected um, and I kind of felt the British office is a is a show that I think is kind of near enough perfect I think it's an amazing piece of, uh, of television um, and I, I kind of watch it maybe once a year to kind of remind myself how good it is um, and 
that episode is kind of a flawless way to end the show. I think that the the the, the office could have ended there. Obviously, it goes on to um, have the Christmas specials where kind of a lot of the loose ends are tied up. But personally, I felt like we could have drawn the line at uh, Dawn rejecting Tim and her going to move to America with his kind of heartbreaking revelation when he comes back out of the office and plugs his radio mic back in, notices the cameras are still there and says into it uh, she said no by the way, I mean that's just an amazing moment and then obviously we have David Brent, his kind of breakdown to his kind of successors that he's being made redundant he's kind of begging them for his job and, and to not be made redundant and that he will suddenly turn everything around I perf- I could have been perfectly happy to leave the whole season there and the whole show there and I think that as much as I like the uh, Christmas specials there is an element of convenience about those that perhaps doesn't sit quite so well with me yeah I mean I rewatched the Christmas specials earlier um, today for this uh, just to kind of remind myself of, of how the show actually ended and what I found quite interesting is when I think back on The Office, the the thing I remember is Tim saying uh, she said no, mm. um, and you know Brent kind of having his first really human moment on the show up to that point, the, the only point where he's not really putting on a performance where he's kind of nakedly desperate, and I think that you know is more in keeping with the tone of the show up until that point because the, the the Office as a show is essentially about how horrible work is mm. and about how horrible those environments are and in the the Christmas specials you know um, it kind of goes completely it's it's that for 90% of its running time because uh, like I, I the the ending of the office Christmas special is very uplifting mm-hmm. you know Dawn and Tim get back together uh, Brent tells uh, Chris to fuck off and you know it has it, it kind of does all of this stuff that's uh, and, you know, and he it leaves everyone in a very very nice place, but it also has this speech that Tim does about, um, you know, it, it kind of saying about how uh, work's terrible, but you occasionally meet people you make a connection with, mm-hmm. uh, which is you know fine. But then you also you kind of see that and think, you know, well that's putting a very positive spin on what was a very dark and bleak and cynical show, mm-hmm. and it does kind of seem to kind of be going against uh, the grain of of the show up until that point in a way that you know I think a, a lot of the other finales we talked about um, they kind of continue in the tone of the show whereas I think there it kind of gives you just this big uplift at the end that perhaps isn't as deserved as as the show seems to think it is yeah. even though as someone who loves the Dawn and Tim dynamic you know seeing them get together does give me a lump in my throat and just make you think oh it's so nice mm-hmm but, it's so nice to get to be together. But then there's there's also that thing that perhaps slightly detracts from it that all of a sudden David Brent finds someone that's oh he finds love yeah that's you kind of just interested in him kind of almost uh, well it kind of stretches credulity I think uh, his romantic subplot in that um, and I'm not entirely sure it needed that but then what the world did need from the Office Christmas specials was his music video <laughs> which is remarkable. Yeah, it is a, an utterly wonderful uh, re- <laughs> encapsulation of sort of mid '90s music video aesthetic. Yeah. Uh, incredible soft focus, 
in a barely furnished apartment with curtains everywhere um him doing a, just an unbelievably earnest version of and terrible version of if you don't know me by now it's yeah. it's a thing of real beauty yeah yeah it is wonderful but like on the other side uh i thought it was interesting to contrast it against the season two finale of the american office where uh which is a show that um i actually really love and uh it's a show that uh, struggled initially to escape the kind of confines of the British office and it didn't quite know what it was doing in the first uh, the first season I think Michael Scott the, the Brent character was kind of largely unlikable and a bit of a dick and they didn't really know what to do and some of the humour didn't quite translate as well but kind of the second series they, they find their feet like um, like so many American shows they kind of take the time to, to figure out what they're doing and Parks and Recreation was a show that was no different, you know, kind of the first season now seems kind of completely out of step with what the show is nowadays uh, kind of three or four seasons down the line um, but the American Office really started to hit a stride kind of halfway through the second season and the season finale of, of uh, season two is uh, an episode called Casino Night where uh, the Dunder Mifflin Office uh, host a charity casino night and uh, the episode itself is a perfect encapsulation of what's really good about the American office in that it, it has its own rhythm and its own sense of humour which is completely different to the British show but there's enough in that DNA uh, from the the British show to make it great in the same kind of way if you know what I mean um, and it's just a, a really wonderful episode um, and the dynamic between Tim and Pam in the American office is different to the dynamic between Dawn and Tim um, but it's no less charming and, and, and kind of no less great when they finally do get together um, and it's notable that in the American office the show suffers markedly once they get married and have kids yeah because I think the, the the driving engine of it is their sort of unrequited romance and the, the, the obstacles they have to overcome along the way mm. and you kind of feel that once that's resolved then you end up in that situation where you have to start throwing in sort of artificial threats to their marriage to kind of keep that relationship mm -hmm. um, interesting uh, because, you know, sort of happy relationships just aren't as dramatically or comedically kind of fertile, although unless, except in the case of um, sort of parks and recreation, which seems to have learned from a lot of the office's mistakes in that regard. Mm. Yeah, because that show has sort of paired off two couples who have got married and are still very, very funny. But I think that show just has a kind of a wackier sense of humour than The than the Office, which always was a little bit more restrained. Yeah. Um, I, I think that, like, with Tim putting himself out there for Dawn in the British office and being rejected um, was kind of great uh, and kind of devastating emotionally to watch in the American office... Tim goes further than putting himself out there. Uh, he actually goes through with kind of laying a kiss on on Pam. But then it was not till the next season <laughs> starts um, with one of the office's best episodes, uh, the one that's entitled "Gay Witch Hunt," which I recommend anyone watches, uh, where Michael uh, forces his entire company into sensitivity training um, by inadvertently calling one of his actually homo homosexual workmates a fag <laughs> without thinking of the consequences of that but anyway uh, you don't realise until the start of the third season that, that it, it didn't work out and Jim has left 
the city and move to another job somewhere else. Um, but I, I really love The American Office. I think it's a really great show. Up, and I think even after um, Jim and Pam get married, it's still got a lot of mileage in it. It's only really when Steve Carell leaves the show that it's, it really suffers. Yeah, I mean they've got such a they had such a great ensemble that there was always someone that you could kind of turn the attention to, and Michael was always kind of in, uh, was a kind of a boundless sort of engine of of comedy and horrible situations. Mm. So when you get rid of him and when you get rid of the will they won't they relationship, I think the show lost kind of two of its key engines and never really knew what to do to replace them. Yeah, and then it just kind of makes Dwight the character more psychotic, which changed the energy of the show, but it was no less funny. Um, it was just kind of a bit more different, but yeah. Anyway, um, there you go, two for the price of one. Two season finales uh, of the same show, separated by one ocean. Um, what's next, Ed? Uh, the next one is the season five finale of and se- series finale of Friday Night Lights, entitled Always. Ah, oh, the book that was a film that then was a TV series that was going to be a film again? Yes, uh, there's no uh, no um, confirmation whether or not they are doing another film just yet, but that's kind of a, a dream yeah. of uh, Peter Berg's, which I don't really feel needs to be fulfilled, uh, because I think that the show ended on such an amazing and perfect note that, uh, again, like Spaced, it would kind of cheapen it, even if they made another film and it was amazing, I do kind of feel it would cheapen it if they uh, if they went back to it. Right, take us through it. Okay, uh, Friday Night Lights, a show about uh, a high school football team, ostensibly, but really all about the, the fictional town of uh, Dillon, Texas, uh, which is uh, modelled on Odessa, which is the, the town in the uh, in the book and in the film version. Uh, and it's all about the lives of the various members of the football team and coach Eric Taylor and his wife Tammy and all the various people who uh, come out on uh, on Friday night to watch the football and what it means to them and about religion and it covers all of these things about small town American life in this sort of beautiful way it's like if Larry McMurtry wrote a TV series about football that is what Friday Night Lights would be mm-hmm. and uh, it's just it's just a really beautiful show and uh, it ends with this uh, with uh, an episode called Always where um the, the, in the third season of the show, te- uh, Coach Taylor gets fired from his job working for West Dillon High because of um, uh, underhanded shenanigans on the part of uh, teach uh, uh, parents of players who don't like him and don't feel he's giving their uh, kids enough to do. And he gets, but rather than out and out fire him, they reassign him to the East Dillon, Texas uh, football uh, program, which basically doesn't exist it hasn't existed until he comes in and he has to build a team from scratch and he goes from having one of the best teams in texas to having this utterly terrible team that he has to build from scratch uh and the fourth season is all about that and the fifth season is about the the team in its ascendancy uh doing sort of fantastic work uh and you know it builds they, they get all the way to the state final and the final episode is about you know what happens in the week leading up to state and it, it does this wonderful job of um you know of doing a great football game at the very end it's something the show always did very well but also uh uh bringing to a close the emotional arcs of a whole slew of characters who some of whom uh, had only been introduced in the fourth season but still felt very real and fully realized characters and particularly one played by uh vince played by michael b jordan Wallace from the Wire doing uh, stellar work, mm-hmm. um, 
and uh, and sort of resolving their plot lines uh, and resolving well not really resolving but you know kind of uh, uh, examining the a crisis in the marriage between uh, uh, Coach Taylor and his wife uh, as they try to decide whether or not they'll move back to take over a super team that of the two Dillon high schools were being conglomerated or if they'll move to Philadelphia for um, Tammy's job and uh, it's just a really kind of beautiful sweet um, very kind of maudlin because it, it is it's unabashedly an ending you know things are are changing and things are uh, are, are never going to be the same for these characters whether or not they win the final the big game or not and uh, it's just it's it's just unbelievably moving to kind of say goodbye to these characters after after sort of five years and so many episodes with them. Right, and and I mean we did say that like uh, any kind of comeback will cheapen it, but what is the likelihood of it happening? Because I mean, has Peter Berg has had his kind of fingers burnt by the kind of battleship uh, kind of hoo-ha uh, I mean that was a massive disaster is television where he might kind of go back to to try and kind of find something or do you think it's again like the space thing kind of uh, just paying fan service well I think that you know there's there's just logistical things that are going to make it difficult like you know, he's because Taylor Kitsch I imagine is free <laughs> yeah he's probably free um, you know, like uh, Carl Chandler's always very busy showing up and doing great supporting work in films. I mean, he was in two of the Oscar nom- Best Picture nominees last year in Argo and Zero Dark Thirty. Um, Connie Britton's on Nashville, so I think that everyone, uh, uh, Jesse Plemons is off being fantastic. Uh, and you know, I think there's just it'd just be difficult to get everyone together. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's that's fine because I think you know there's a line in the the final in the Christmas special of The Office. Where uh, where Tim says, uh, if you turn the camera off, it's not an ending, is it? I'm still here, my life's not over, and that's kind of how I feel about the ending of Friday Night Lights. I kind of feel it ends in such a way where you think those characters, they all, it feels like they all go on and just kind of live their own lives, and it's you, you kind of feel happy to let them go. And I think that that would be the the right thing to do with that show because it was so special and so sort of beautiful that doing anything else with them no matter how good would just detract from how brilliant the the rest of the show was mm. yeah it's a good point it's just always always uh, knowing where to end things and is is kind of a uh, you know very difficult thing i mean i, I kind of the ending of the sopranos we've talked about is fantastic but i kind of feel like the sopranos was a season too long mm and I, th- I feel like it, the ending it did kind peak of, with season 5 yeah. season 5 is they're just fantastic yeah I, I think that uh, I don't know whether you know showrunners are becoming more acutely aware of that by kind of making a statement earlier on of when a show is going to end I mean we've had Breaking Bad Mad Men The Wire have all said kind of halfway through their runs like you know we've got two more seasons and, and that's your lot yeah I think that um, people I think they just kind of get a bit scared about uh, going on too long and becoming um, just becoming disliked by the fans or, or from sort of marring the good work that they've done up until that point. I mean, The Sopranos didn't do it, but there are plenty of shows that just kind of produce the economics of television and the idea that the whole thing is you're meant to make as many episodes as possible, mm. that, you know, you just keep going and going and going and maybe in the end you're not doing your best work, but you're doing it because it's your job. 
I think that the, the cable model has kind of broken that assumption. It's like, you know, we don't need to keep doing this show. We can just kind of say, we've said everything we want to do and now it's time to stop. And, you know, to kind of take a more kind of uh, or tourist approach to it and the idea that the work is the thing that matters, not the amount of it that you can create. Yeah, and that's in opposition to the network model where something like, we mentioned it before, Friends, is literally just churn it out, churn it out, churn it out until the cast gets sick of it. I was listening to the Sam Simon episode of uh, WTF. Uh, Sam Simon was one of the co-creators of The Simpsons who's now sadly dying of cancer, and he was talking on that about how... Uh, he works at the now as a sort of consultant on anger management, the Charlie Sheen sitcom, and how on that uh, show they have a, they had a, an insane deal where the first season was ten episodes long and the second season was ninety episodes long, and essentially it's just writers in a room banging their heads every week trying to just crank out a script that they can just start filming and, and for the episode to go up that week. I think that is an insane version of what the network model can be but it's kind of indicative of you know how much it will, will grind you down no matter how good the work is and obviously anger management is not a good show <laughs> yeah yeah it's fascinating to see how that that kind of works um our next choice is um well i could have, we could have picked because of the way this show is structured uh we could have picked one of maybe three or four seasons of this um, but I'm picking uh, Kerber Enthusiasm and the reason we could have picked any of the seasons uh, well not any but like a lot of them is that each season happens to be an elaborately constructed joke and typically <laughs> the tenth episode or the final episode of each season is the punchline and in some seasons you don't quite realize what the joke is <laughs> until the last episode so for instance i could have picked season four where larry is inexplicably cast in the producers mm-hmm. uh, with david schwimmer on broadway and uh, the gag in the final bit is that mel brooks is trying to do a producers on the producers by casting someone who really shouldn't be in the producers in larry <laughs> david hoping it will go wrong and he'll never have to do the producers again and then i could have picked uh the season uh where larry gets uh, the seinfeld gang back together in fact i was very close um to doing that and you know curb being curb he gets hosts a incredibly expensive and elaborate um seinfeld reunion in a kind of quite absurd and comprehensive well sorry complex kind of uh, ruse to get his wife back uh, or I could choose the last season where <laughs> he ends up moving to Paris to avoid having to have an awkward social moment <laughs> with a friend he doesn't really like um, but what I've gone for is season 3 um, uh, which is the season in which Larry and other investors including Ted Danson and Michael York attempt to open a restaurant and <laughs> the season has a lot of going for it there's obviously the jeff garland's character gets a dog which is you know kind of comes into the season quite a lot and comes into the so the the Kirby enthusiasm uh, mythology <laughs> uh, quite a lot especially larry's uh, perceived sexual relationship with the dog um <laughs> we have a crazy eye killer <laughs> crazy eyes killer who is <laughs> one of the series more colourful characters um, 
and yeah lots of lots of little things happen uh, in in season 3 but it builds kind of fairly quietly to this final episode where now correct me if I'm wrong Ed but these are the kind of beats of the episode I watched it today um but essentially uh Larry goes with Jeff to pick up his daughter uh Jeff's daughter's school happens to feature a parent child dodgeball game and one of the parents in the dodgeball game is a notable restaurant critic whose gimmick is giving two thumbs up to restaurants he likes he's about to review Larry's restaurant Larry accidentally breaks both of the the <laughs> the critic's thumbs with a dodgeball and then as a kind of recompense has to go and apologise then the the uh, critic recommends a chef to them the chef has been fired by Larry earlier in the episode because he pretends to be bald and wears a wig when he's not at work because he thinks that Larry will only hire a bald chef uh, so he the critic recommends a, a, um, a chef who signs on and Larry and Jeff think he's a Holocaust survivor because he has a number seemingly tattooed on the inside of his arm. And then it turns out that the chef happens to not be a Holocaust survivor but has written the lottery numbers on the inside of his arm. But he does have Tourette's. And <laughs> so this is all one episode. Bear, bear with me. Um, and at the conclusion of the episode, uh, the chef has a Tourette's outburst on opening night and it shuts everyone up in the thing and remembering back an earlier incident of how kids at a local high school had shaved their heads in solidarity of another kid who had cancer Larry decides to do something great for his chef who is who has Tourette's and he starts what can only be described as an operatic orgy of swearing <laughs> and <laughs> what we get is <laughs> the most profane <laughs> maybe three minutes of a TV show ever and it's brilliantly funny and the whole season and that's what I remember when I that was the first season that we got to the end of a season of Curb and I was just like that is such an elaborately plotted joke <laughs> that I, I I just have to take my hat off and say fair play Mr. David because his, his plotting in Seinfeld was always ridiculously elaborate but that was quite something else yeah, I'm glad we're talking about uh, this one because uh, one of my contenders for it was the um, the fourth season of Seinfeld where Jerry and George pitch Jerry, which is essentially Seinfeld, and they relive the creation of Seinfeld and it's just sort of dizzyingly clever um, bit of uh, mythologising on their part. Um, and it's just such a, a brilliant sort of construction. Uh, and Curb was always a lot looser and, and I think... Um, the third season is the one where they first try that kind of elaborate build and for me it's kind of the one that pays off the best I mean the, the producers one is great and that whole performance is brilliant and the, the Seinfeld one's great but this one I think takes it just for the, the, the beauty of the phrase fuck you you car wash cunt yes and um, I, I really love I think Jeff Garland's is he says cock cock grandma cock <laughs> Isn't it, cock, isn't it cock cock jism grandma cock yeah that's it I think there's a jism in there yeah and it's just Usually it's is. it's brilliant it's just and then just the, the satisfaction and nothing normally works out for Larry but for this to work out for him in just the most kind of preposterous way is just hugely satisfying it's his uh, I'm Spartacus moment but, <laughs> yeah but I'm with... fucking cunting Spartacus 
Yeah, that's definitely the way it is. Um, right, okay, we've got one last choice. Um, what's it going to be, Ed? It's going to be Discos and Dragons, the final episode, sadly, of Freaks and Geeks. Yeah, so we've got our uh, show here that was cancelled. And was this one of the episodes that didn't air? Uh, yes, I think it was, either, it was either one of the ones who didn't air or it might have been one that didn't air in order because that show was very shoddily treated. You could say that. Um, very shoddily treated indeed. So give us a precy of Discos and Dragons. Uh, well, Freaks and Geeks, created by uh, Paul Feig, aired in 1999 and, and 2000, just about the lives of a bunch of kids in uh, Illinois in the uh, 1980s. In um, the early part of the 1980s, it focused on two groups, the Geeks, which was uh, Martin Starr, Stan Levine, and uh, John Francis Daly, you know, sort of nerdy kids who are really into Steve Martin, and uh, the Freaks, who are sort of the, the dropout stoner sort of wasters led by James Franco um, but you know into their orbit f- uh, falls uh, Linda Cardellini most recently seen on Mad Men um, uh, uh, and you know the the whole episode is uh, kind of because it wasn't conceived as the series finale it just kind of follows uh, the two separate groups as on the one hand um, James Franco gets uh punished for trying to set off a fire alarm in order to avoid taking part in a test so he gets assigned to work in the AV department alongside the geeks and he ends up playing Dungeons and Dragons with them and on the other side um, Lindsay uh, played by Linda Cardellini um, uh, goes to uh, disco with uh, and sees uh, the character played by uh, Jason Siegel taking part in a disco competition and those are kind of the two separate strands uh, going on and you know and, and it's uh, essentially an episode about these groups kind of being thrown out of their comfort zone including James Franco finding out that he loves Dungeons and Dragons which I think is a lovely plot point mm-hmm. uh, yeah just kind of playing out because it's also taking part at the end of the school year so there's this sort of sense of change Lindsay's found out that she's got a chance to go to uh, a university for two weeks as part of an academic summit uh, uh, but she also starts getting into the Grateful Dead and kind of becomes fascinated by the idea of deadheads and sort of following the band everywhere uh, and you know there's just this wonderful kind of air of change and of people kind of trying to de- sort of subtly trying to decide what they're going to be doing sort of over the summer but also kind of with their lives even though they'll be coming back in the fall but you know there's there's this sort of air of sort of finality to it which is uh really sweet and, and melancholy because of that air of finality to it um do you think that um what i'm trying to say is um i can't really picture where freaks and geeks was going to go mm. in a second season i always kind of almost consider it like it's a miniseries yeah rather than anything else like where would it have gone had they been renewed and not not cancelled uh, I guess they would have come back and then seen if uh, what they could and then sort of it would have been the final year for the freaks and then they would have all either gone off to their own things or you know the way that sort of Lindsay was kind of uh, rebelling against what her parents kind of wanted like, I could imagine them all staying in the same town and just kind of sort of hanging out and getting stoned or sort of as stoned as you can get on sort of network television 
Um, mm. I just think it would have kind of slowly investigated, uh, explored their lives in a sort of a sort of sweetly subtle and comic way. I yeah. think that's kind of the way they would have had to go with it. I don't think there would have any been sort of any big sort of upheavals for them over the time. I think it would just kind of continued to explore the sort of the, the evolution of their lives. They probably may have focused on the younger cast more as they grew up and started to go through all the big life changes that, you know, sort of they'd have to go through as they go through high school. Right, yeah. But I think I always think of Freaks and Geeks, although yeah, I only did have one series, I kind of I I, I I kind of watch that season and think, well, I'm happy with that one series. I kind mm-hmm. of, I'm not left wanting more by that. Oh yeah, I don't f- finish it feeling sort of disappointed that there's not more. I feel happy that you know there's these 18 sort of perfect hours of television. Mm. It's not like Firefly, whereas like, oh well, that could have been, yeah, you know, super great. This is, you know, it stands on its own. It works on its own, and yeah, a great season and a great. Finish and a, and a nice nice pick to kind of round things up. That's a pretty decent list, isn't it? Yeah, I think there's some great stuff we've ruined for people there. Yeah. So, oh yeah, we probably should have given a spoiler alert <laughs> at the start of this uh, the start of this particular episode. But you know, sorry, sorry guys. And if you kept listening after all that, then yeah, you've really only got yourself to blame. Um, so yeah, I mean, if you've enjoyed this episode, um, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Uh, find our Facebook page. Give us a little like on there, assuming that you do like it. Um, and yeah, we're going to be back next week. We're going to have a, a another episode. I can't remember what we're going to do it on, but I'm sure it'll be great. Um, but until then, uh, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. <laughs> <laughs>